Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that you brought me back and uh, brought all of those who have joined me here tonight as well. Thank you that they were in your care in teaching while I was gone and that I, Father, had good results in the work you gave me to do. And, and now we're back to the work you've given us here. And it is a work of joy, the chance to hear your word, to learn of it, and to learn more of you in the process. And then as we do learn more, we grow closer. And as we grow closer, we serve you better. And as we serve you better, you're more pleased, you're more glorified. And our, our reward, Father, is more secure. We thank you, Lord, that you would give us the opportunity to be with uh, the, the word of God tonight. I pray you'd speak through me as the Holy Spirit can only, only the Holy Spirit can do. And I pray you'd give me uh, the strength and the wisdom to speak clearly what is to be said. And that whatever is said and whatever is heard would be known to be by you and for you and from you so that we would have no excuse and we would listen and, and act accordingly. And I say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We got to take a minute at least to remember where we were, don't we? We were in chapter 4, as I said. The restoration of the nation of Israel is in its final phase. The Lord raised a godly leader in the man of Nehemiah to take Israel from the classroom, from the teaching of Ezra, into the field, into the practice of what they've been taught. And where we were in chapter 4 was at the moment when they began to encounter the opposition of the locals, the peoples that surrounded Israel in that day, and their opposition to the wall in particular. So we're backing up just a few verses, and through some of the teaching I did, just to remind you, and then we'll go forward from there. So starting in verse 7. The text says, now when Sembalot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Amorites and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. So as we learned before, as we read this in the past week, we taught the enemies of Israel from among all of those surrounding nations had determined they had to put a stop to what was going on in Israel That opposition is more than just political. As we said, it was a reflection of God's decree spoken through the prophets, Daniel and Jeremiah, that beginning with the Babylonian captivity, Israel had entered into a period called the age or the times of the Gentiles. This is a period when Gentile nations would persecute and at times overrun the nation. And that that period continues even now, even until the time of Jesus' second coming. So it's a period in which Gentile opposition to Israel would gain a foothold, would gain a measure of success throughout that period. Here you see just a small example of endless Gentile persecution of Israel. Three men lead the opposition here. They come in to stop the rebuilding and they take up arms to stop Nehemiah. They come from all four sides. As we said last time, when you look at who these men are and where they come from, they represent all four sides of Israel. So they're being attacked from all directions. And then we also said that even though Nehemiah doesn't say anything about it, this attack did take place and it did have a measure of success. You see it implied at the end of verse eight when he says there was a disturbance. That's an understatement. Uh, There was people killed. Israel suffered under that attack. Josephus says that the initial attack killed many Jews. But it wasn't enough to stop the rebuilding. It wasn't enough to capture the city. But it was enough to give the people in the city a firsthand lesson in why the walls needed to be built in the first place. This is their protection against their enemies. And God had allowed a limited degree of success here with the enemies of Israel attacking in this moment. And I think he did so to teach a lesson to the nation of Israel on the importance of finishing this wall. And then we ended last time with Nehemiah's prayer. The prayer he issues in verses 9 through 10 is a response to the attack. And he says in verse 9, But we prayed to our God, and because of them we set up a guard against them day and night. 
Thus in Judah it was said, The strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. So all the people we see pray together, it says in verse 9, for the Lord to strengthen them for the work and to protect them from further attack. And when we looked at this last time, we said the prayer that Nehemiah gives here is characteristic of his nature to be a man who enters into prayer quite often. That's one of the characteristics people often note about Nehemiah when they study this book. That the first response of God's people in any set of circumstances is to pray. Because prayer recognizes God's irreplaceable role in seeing us through our trials. And without belaboring that, I'll move forward. We talked that last time. But the next step is equally important. And this is where we pick up in new material. Having offered the prayer, now what the people do is move forward to do what they can within the limits of their ability to protect themselves and to protect the work. Look at the next section. Verse 11 through verse 14. Our enemy said they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them and put a stop to their work. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall the exposed places, and I stationed the people in families with their swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. So Nehemiah is narrating this, right, and he's quoting what he knows. He tells us that the enemies of Israel were conspiring for another attack, one that they thought would bring an end to all of the work. But then we're told that there are Jews who live outside the city. Remember, the city is not the only place Jews are living. They're scattered throughout their land. And the ones outside the city overhear the conversations of Israel's enemies as they conspire for this next attack. And they come and they report what they've heard to Nehemiah and to the people in the city. Now, Nehemiah could have responded to those reports in one of two ways, largely speaking. He could have returned to his knees and prayed and asked God, why aren't you intervening to stop this attack? After all, I've been praying for this. I've been praying all along. You know the kind of person I am. I pray about everything. And here I am again praying once more because I've heard they're coming. Or what you could do, as Nehemiah did, is you could conclude that the reports from the Jewish spies were evidence of God's divine intervention in and of themselves and then take action based on those reports. Nehemiah chose option number two. He reacts to the news by taking the necessary steps. And in doing so, he teaches us another important lesson to prayer, one that I think is often overlooked. Prayer is essential to walking in the will of God with his divine blessing. But prayer is prerequisite to action, not a substitute for action. It's a prerequisite, not a substitute. Oliver Cromwell said, trust in God and keep your gunpowder dry. And Spurgeon said, maybe a better source for our purposes, Spurgeon said, pray as if everything depended on God and then preach as if everything depended on you. Nehemiah stations guards at various points along the wall. And you notice he says at the vulnerable points where the wall was lowest, he puts men in those spots to protect the workers. Now, you might have wondered why he didn't do all this in the first place before even the first attack took place. Well, clearly he underestimated the degree of the threat. I guess that's easy enough to say. But if he had done that, you notice what he had to do here in order to guard properly. He had to devote a significant amount of labor to just the guarding effort. And to do that means that he has to slow down the work of the wall. So in, in his initial calculations, he 
he made a guess or a gamble that he said, I need to use all of the labor I can to build the wall as fast as I can. It proved to be a wrong distribution of the labor, so he adjusted. Now he has some working and some watching. And then notice also he responds to the fear of the people. The guards, I'm sure, must have looked pretty pitiful as he stations them with whatever tools and and weaponry they may have had, and he puts them on the wall, and that's compared to the strength of all those surrounding nations. They probably didn't look like they could handle very much. They probably knew it. You know, you don't see Nehemiah show up and pump these guys up and tell them, you're strong and fearless and you're invincible and you look awesome. No, and I assume he knew better than to try to flatter them because it wouldn't have done any good anyway. They can see for themselves they weren't strong enough. He knew that. So what does he remind them of? Not their power. God's power. There's a union of reliance on God and personal action. And in this one little passage of Nehemiah, at least one of the better examples in Scripture of the union of those two things, of a reliance on God and personal action. Nehemiah began with an appeal to God through prayer, and then he stood up and then he took every single action that he could within the limits of his ability to accomplish the work that he knew God had given him. And yet, even as he goes about the work, he recognizes that it will have to be sustained by the power of God. And his success was ultimately a product of God's strength, not men's strength. But that fact didn't diminish his willingness to work as hard as he could. There's a secret here to Christian maturity that I think we can all benefit from. A secret that extends into the success of our personal ministry. Never see your partnership with God as an or partnership. God makes something happen, or I do it myself. If that's how you see your relationship with the Lord in ministry, then over time you're often going to sit on your hands thinking God will get it done without you, and you'll go nowhere. And then, ironically, you'll get tired of sitting and getting nothing done, and you'll finally decide, well, if God's not going to do it, I need to do it myself. Which is never the truth. Instead, you need to recognize that your partnership with the Lord is always an and partnership. It is God and us in whatever work God does. He is the beginning and the end of all things. So every good work begins and ends with God. We know that. But if he had wanted to do all of that work all by himself, then he never would have called us to partner with him in the first place. So self-evidently, though he doesn't need us, he's chosen to work with us. So he expects us to put our shoulders to the work because he has a plan to accomplish something through us. So we can choose to not join in the plan and the work will get done through someone else. Or we can put our shoulder to the work. Serving God is work. It requires sacrifice. It can be very demanding. It will require we bear others' burdens. But that burden, Scripture says, is light. Especially when it's compared to the work required to earn God's favor, which Christ did on our behalf. So the work of salvation having been done, it makes all the other work we do light. By comparison, we serve in joy, but just don't think that it's going to be easy. So now it's become apparent that the defense of the wall and of the workers is at least as important as the construction project itself. And so Nehemiah has adjusted the procedures and he institutes some new rules associated with the work so that the guarding of the people can happen at the same time as the work of the people. In verses 15 through 23, we read, When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, Then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. From that day on, half of my servants carried out the work, while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates, and the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand, doing the work, and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, 
The work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. And whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. At that time, I also said to the people, let each man with his servants spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon, even to the water. So notice in verse 15, once again, Nehemiah credits God with the frustration of the plans of Israel's enemies. That was back to what we said a minute ago. Option number two, right? Nehemiah knew that the discovery of that impending attack was God at work in protecting Israel. God was moving to tell them what was coming so that they would know what to do with it. But if his move, if God's move was to warn the people, then it stands to reason he expected the people to take the next move. Because we know he could have simply wiped out the enemy with one thought if he had wanted to. He took a measured step that left work to be done. And that work obviously fell on Nehemiah and the city. And Nehemiah correctly recognized that the warning was God's indication to him on how to respond. His move in general is quite impressive. First, he takes half his workforce and he redeploys them to guard duty. Half the workforce. Now, that's the price that he's willing to pay, slowing the work down by 50%. For what? For the sake of the people. In Nehemiah's case, the need for protection is easy to see. We don't, we don't have any doubts about why he had to do that. But there's a lesson here that's really interesting. The lesson for leaders of any kind in any form of ministry. We learned earlier that God gave Nehemiah a construction project, right? That's what brought him here, to build the wall. That's what caused him to even have an interest in coming, the knowledge that the wall was not built. And so he comes with a calling, if you will, a mission, build the wall. God provides... Men like Nehemiah, anytime there's a work to be done, men who will shepherd God's people so that the work of the ministry will get accomplished. But we've said this earlier. Ultimately, the work of ministry is not building walls. It's building people. And Nehemiah was sent to build up the nation of Israel, not to build a wall. That's what the word edify means, by the way, to build up. So our leaders are called to build us And the work that we may engage in in one form or another is merely the context or the backdrop for that spiritual work that's happening in each person. But leaders can confuse their purpose if they're not careful. They may come to think that they're supposed to build walls or buildings or campuses or the Internet or television ministry of their choice. They can see people as nothing more than a means to that building project. Instead, they have to understand what Nehemiah understood here. The point was the people. Not the wall. He would take whatever sacrifice was required in the pace and in the efficiency of the work so that there wasn't a man or woman lost in the process. Because in the end, that's what the wall was for, to protect the people. The people weren't there for the wall. Nehemiah didn't care of the sacrifice in terms of the construction. What good would it, what good would it have been for him if he had managed to finish that wall twice as fast and record speed only to have no one left to live in the city as a result of the attacks? He knew the people mattered more. Similarly, what use is our ministry in any form, no matter what it accomplishes, if in its pursuit we disappoint or demoralize or discard God's people as a price of the success of our ministry? Secondly, notice that even with the actions Nehemiah has taken, victory isn't assured. He says to the trumpeter, I want you to stay near me because as soon as we see an attack coming, we're all going to rally to that point. In other words, there aren't enough people. 
to do the job of guarding the wall and not to cover the full length of it anyway. So the plan is if an attack comes in one spot, we all need to go to that spot. That way, the entire strength of the guard of all the people could be brought to bear in defense of the wall at a certain point. That's a sensible plan, obviously, given his limited resources. But notice also Nehemiah points the people to God once more in the victory. He has a great plan. He's using his resources very wisely, but he doesn't expect that his victory will come from those things. He says, God will bring us the victory. He will fight for us under these circumstances. This is another example of and theology, as I call it. We do what we do based on what God calls us to and what he gives us capability to do, knowing that in the end the success comes from God. Those things are not mutually exclusive. They're complementary. God and the people will defend this wall. The people rallying together, God fighting for us. Throughout all of this, I think you can see God's wisdom in not solving the problems directly for these people. Rather than vanquish the enemy on his own, he's enlisted the people to defend the wall. And as Nehemiah says, God is working through them to accomplish that outcome. The wisdom in this is requiring people to work together to seek the outcome that only God can provide. It's not contradictory. It's brilliant. It's God's wisdom. It's an assurance that you will succeed working together because I'll give you the success. But the point is, that's contingent on you working together which in itself brings the real spiritual benefits God intended in the first place, which is all of the all of the maturing and the goodness that comes from the people of God working together in obedience to God. In a nutshell, that's the point of any gathering of God's people. The body of Christ is assembled to accomplish a work that only God can bring about. The people are united here. They're encouraged. They're strengthened and they're edified. And that's true. Anytime we come together in some kind of common work of obedience to the will of God, In the end, though, the work that's accomplished is one of the Lord in the hearts of the people. And the unity of the body makes that possible. Paul says in Colossians 2, 6 and 7, he says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. And all of those yous in that passage, in Texas, we'd say, Y'all, because they're all plural. Paul says the church as a whole, and he's speaking to the group of us. You all are being built up and established in faith, walking together with Christ. It's a community effort. It's a team sport. Therefore, the people, having successfully weathered the storm of the attack, now it's time for the enemy to attack from within. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now, there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters, are many, and therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. Then there were others who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses, that we might get grain because of the famine. And then there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our field and our vineyards. Now, our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers and our children like their children. Yet, behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. We'll we'll pause there. As Paul wrote, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And that is apparent here in this moment. In the days before and during the wall construction the people in Israel had apparently begun to take advantage of each other financially. 
There are three types of complaints represented in the verse in the passage we just read. Three types of abuse taking place within the camp of Israel. In verse 2, we hear first that larger clans were hoarding and consuming a disproportionate amount of the grain that was being produced in the, in the land of Israel. And as a result, they were leaving too little for the smaller families and tribes. So it was a selfish issue. And then as a result, we see in verse 3, a second group being forced to mortgage their land to other Jews, to the Jews in the first group, to pay for the grain that they needed since their own lands weren't yielding enough. And then in verse 4, you find a third group who's borrowed money to pay taxes on the property because they didn't have enough money from their grain production to pay for that income. And as you see in verse 5, then the complaints begin between the groups. One group saying, well, we're just like them and our children are just like them, but we're being sold into slavery. And the implication is while they are not. So selfishness has reigned in the land of Israel. Those who hoarded have placed the rest of the camp into need. And then those who had need were required to borrow. And then they were taken advantage of in the borrowing. And evidently those who were lending here were making a profit at the expense of their Jewish brothers through usury interest. Extremely high interest rates were being charged for the lending of, of money in this case, or, or of food. And that is against the law. The law of Moses prohibited one Jew from charging interest to another under these circumstances. But the Jews were doing it nonetheless. So in verse 5, the people complained to Nehemiah. This is a, a source of, of discord and division within the nation of Israel, obviously. And that's the intent, as the enemy has designed it. The enemy takes advantage of our flesh and our sin and uses it whenever he can. And here he's used it to drive a wedge between the families. It's interesting at this point in the story, when you consider how much of the success they've had so far has been dependent on them working very closely together. So this is a very big threat to their continued working if they cannot trust one another and work together. So in verse 5, they complain. They complain that some families have been forced to sell their children to other Jewish families as servants, as slaves, to pay off their debt. The law provided for this in Exodus as a means for families to take on indentured servitude to pay off debt. We do the same thing. We take on indentured servitude to pay off debt. You call it your job, and it is, but you can't quit it when you have a big mortgage, and you can't dictate the times you go and when you come home very easily, and you can't determine a lot of things about your life that you would otherwise determine if you weren't forced to work because you have a debt. You can think of it today of a family in dire need with teenage kids, and those teenage kids take on a job to help pay for the needs of the family, which is something similar to what you see here, where the parents say, okay, kids, I've got to get some money out of you. I'm going to sell you to the neighbor, and he's going to use you for slavery. But it's slavery of a different sort. It's not, you know, chains and, and whips. It's slavery of a servant in a home. They just don't have the freedom to leave. So families in Israel could do this within the limits set by the law. But now the work of the wall, remember, they're working all day and they're guarding at night. So the work of the wall is consuming so much of their time that the families now are at risk of not having enough to eat because this is putting a strain on their ability to raise crops. That's why they say it's a famine. And now some of those debts are coming due. So the families that are suffering the worst are those that cannot repay their debt because they cannot work their land. So they cannot gain the, the material goods off the land to pay the debt. And it's just a cycle. And they complain to Nehemiah that, look, here we are returning to slavery again. Only this time we're becoming slaves to one another in the land. Nehemiah's response follows. Look at verses 6 through 8. 
He first says, then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and their words. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, you are exacting usury, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now, would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Well, naturally, he's angry, but he's angry with their sin, principally, and their behavior here was sinful. The larger families were selfish. They showed no regard for their brothers. The other families, those families and others were lending and robbing their brothers through this usury interest practice, placing even greater hardship on them. So he's mad at the whole cycle of sin that now is dominating in the nation of Israel. Then next, it says he considers what course of action he's going to take carefully. It says he consults with himself, but that's not schizophrenia. What he means is he gives careful consideration privately first, then with consulting with nobles and rulers. It says he contended with them. It means he challenged them on why this was going on. He goes to them as leaders in the people and says, why did this ever get going in the first place? How did you allow it? And he calls it what it is. This is really smart politics on Nehemiah's part. He may be the governor of the province for Persia, and he's obviously an established leader in the city, but that doesn't mean he's going to act unilaterally. He has to build some consensus with the people. He needs to lead them in bringing them to a common perspective on what has happened and on the errors of, the, of their ways so that then he can lead a unified response to the problem. He can't fiat the solution. That's not what a Christian leader does. A Christian leader always faces this sooner or later in their ministry. And no matter what authority they feel they have, that authority is never absolute. Only Christ's rule is unchallenged. The rest of us need persuasion. And persuasion in this case means knowing how you have to build your case to the point where their hearts are moved. I assume Nehemiah knew from the very beginning what the right thing to do was. So this consultation period and this this working around and talking to the nobles, all of this is being done not because he's unclear of what he needs to do. It's not manipulation. It's just politics. And politics isn't a dirty word, even if most politics is dirty. The, the term simply means the art of influencing people into agreement. The art of influencing them into agreement. And Nehemiah's role as a leader had to include influencing God's people into agreement with God's expectations. And so it was here, so it will be for any godly leader. We all seek to influence God's people into agreement with God's word. We want to influence them. We want them to see the world differently. We want them to reach the point where they see it the way they should. And then in an obedient walk, they respond and live according to what they've learned. But you can't mandate those things. Now, trust me, I've tried. It doesn't work. It's not the way it works. You can't order obedience. You can't command faithful living and expect that to settle the matter with a Christian or with anybody who follows the Lord. You have to have at least some degree of competence in politics in the best sense of the word. You have to be able to teach, exhort, correct, persuade, admonish God's people until they see the truth for themselves. And then with the truth reigning in their hearts, God's people will obey God's word. But they do it from within, not from outside. That's what a true leader has to do. You have to bring people to the point where they see it the way you do, so they'll act the way they should. That's a leader. In verse 7, Nehemiah has built his alliances and arrived at a consensus, it would seem. 
And so then he has the mass assembly, and now the time is to turn that politicking onto the people. And he begins with an accusation of misconduct. He says to the nobles, you're charging usury interest. In other words, he says to the nobles, and I assume he repeated it to the people, he says, you're violating the law of God. He's calling sin, sin to their face. Then he makes a teaching point from recent history. Nehemiah says he, and this is interesting, this is the first time we learn this, he and the other exiles who traveled down from Persia in this third wave of exiles, apparently they redeemed some of their Jewish brothers from the slavery they were in in Persia to allow them to accompany the exiles down into Jerusalem. More, more than likely, when he found out he was coming, he did everything he could to get as many of his Jewish brothers out of slavery to bring them down if they wanted to come. Many Jews that had remained in Persia were still slaves at this point. And they had owners, and those owners are not going to let them go for free. They're going to expect payment. And so it appears as though Nehemiah and the others that were coming with him raised funds, probably from their own personal savings and from other Jews, to free as many as they possibly could. It's like an ancient-day Oscar Schindler purchasing the freedom of as many Jews as he could. He points that out as a teaching point. And then he takes that fact and he uses it to convict the hearts of the people. He says, if Jews were willing to pay for the freedom of their brothers and sisters in Persia, then why would those same Jews turn around now and re-enslave the very neighbors they paid to free? It's ironic, isn't it? It makes no sense for you to be sacrificial in one moment and then selfish, be it doing about face and be so selfish, become the oppressor in the next. But that's human nature. That's the sinfulness of the human heart. And then look at the people's response. Silence. There's no way you can respond to that. There's no defense to that. That's a sure sign of conviction, by the way. Silence. Conviction is a powerful tool in the, wielded by the Spirit. Conviction is a feeling of self-condemnation, but righteously so. Righteous self-condemnation. The flesh, our flesh, is wired to reject conviction. We're wired to reject it. If at all possible, we're going to wiggle out from underneath its pressure, right? We're going to seek excuses. We're going to rationalize our choices. We're going to blame others. We have to experience conviction with no opportunity for that wiggle room if we're ever going to get to the point of repentance. We have to have no way to defend our position in the face of it. And God can do that. God can do that. When the Lord is working in our heart, conviction is inescapable. Inescapable. We may try to fight it. I know we all have at some point. But in the face of overwhelming evidence, as the Lord brings us that conviction, you lose your strength. You might run, but you can't escape the reality of who you really are. And God shows that to us all in good timing. And that's part of grace in itself, helping us become who we need to be. And God uses people, leaders, others around us, teachers, to do that on occasion. Here you see him using Nehemiah. He speaks with spiritual authority. He brings conviction through the Spirit's work in their hearts. And as they hear the truth and as they recognize their guilt and they find no argument in the face of it, they remain silent. Here again, leaders could learn something from this, right? Leading God's people into conviction requires the steps you see here almost in every case. A willingness to call sin, sin. Don't beat around the bush. We can't avoid the hard moments. We have to have the courage to call it like it is. Then, secondly... Having named the sin, the leader has to teach and exhort the people to see themselves as God 
sees them under these circumstances, showing them their hypocrisy or showing them their selfishness or their stubbornness or whatever may be their personal stumbling block to obedience. But it has to be a teaching point rooted in something other than them. Nehemiah used his own personal experience and the collective experience of Israel to illustrate his concern. We have an even more powerful tool at our disposal, the word of God. For any situation I can imagine under the sun, there is something relevant in the scripture that I can bring to bear on that moment to expose the sin of someone's heart and explain to them where there is a better course. If I do that with a certain degree of skill, the spirit has all he needs in wielding that sword to convict the heart of those who hear it. And as the spirit works and as the heart is changed, the repentance will come. It doesn't always happen right then and there. There's plenty of us who are so stubborn, we wouldn't want to give someone else the satisfaction of the conviction we feel, right? So we'll wait, but we'll feel it later. And in time, it will do what it's intended to do. Because as it takes hold, then the next step for the leaders takes place. When he can tell that something has changed and the silence is there or the, the look is there that tells us that repentance has taken place, then he can lay out a path to obedience. Because when you're feeling the pressure of conviction, you're looking for an escape. And the escape is to agree with God. To walk in obedience, walk out from under the conviction that sin creates and walk in the light of obedience. And look what he says in verse nine. Again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off this usury. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves and their houses. Also, the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. So Nehemiah asks a leading question. He says, should we not walk in the fear of the Lord so that we may stand apart from the ungodly nations of the world? Shouldn't God's people look differently than the world? Everyone who's ever been under the conviction of the spirit would agree with that statement. Of course, we want to stand out for truth and righteousness. Of course, we don't want to look like the world. So when we are looking like the world and someone points out that we shouldn't look like the world, then the next obvious thing we must all agree with is we must change what we're doing. And he offers them a model in himself in that regard. He says he and his servants have been lending money to the people as well. Nehemiah is a compassionate man. And if the need of the people were so clear that others were lending to one another, then of course he's noticed that need as well. And he's stepped in at times and he has given them what he can. But when he tells the others to stop charging interest, it would tell us he has not done that himself, that he's done it properly where they have not. And now he calls them to follow his model, to follow what the law requires. And then there is still the matter of restitution. You see, even if they were to step forward in time from this moment, not charging interest any longer, there's still the history here. They still now have possession of land that they have taken as debt payment. They still have children that are slaves. They still have the user interest they've charged in the past that is sitting in their bank account, so to speak. What about all of that? Ceasing to charge future interest did not fix past injustice. So to rectify it, Nehemiah calls for essentially a jubilee. In verse 11, He asks that all debts be forgiven and all property be returned to its owner. And then he asks that any interest, and that's the hundredth part that he references here. And the reason it's called the hundredth part was that the interest rate amounted to one one hundredth or one percent of the value of the loan taken per month. So that's 12 percent a year annual interest. So he says, I want that returned as well. Everything to be made right. You think that takes guts to ask for that? 
You remember when you're a leader in front of a large group of people and you make a demand, in that moment, your power is at stake to a degree because if your demand is rejected, you've been diminished as a leader in that moment. So to make a very strong demand takes guts. It's the right thing to do, and that's why he does it. But it's an ever-present dilemma of any leader in ministry. In fact, you can go to any place, not just in ministry, politics, government, business, anywhere. It's an ever-present dilemma of a leader of how to balance strength with popularity. On the one hand, God appoints leaders to move people where they won't go on their own. On the other hand, leaders are people too, so naturally we seek the people's agreement and their admiration for our leadership, etc. But you can do that to a fault. Godly leadership isn't about building consensus. It requires taking people where they do not want to go, but doing it in such a way that they think it was their idea from the start. Margaret Thatcher once said, Consensus is the process of abandoning all beliefs, all principles, all values, and all policies, so it is something in which no one believes, to which no one objects. So the point is, Nehemiah had to move them in the right place, and in this case, move them quite a distance, but do it in such a way that they would actually be willing to do it. And he uses every tool that a leader has. The truth of God's word regarding what is sin, a conviction by an appeal to what is right and what is godly, and then as the conviction sets in, a way out that relieves the conviction. In this case, it's a big way. It's a long distance they have to walk. His approach leads the people to a very difficult but absolutely essential conclusion. And yet, if they are adopting it willingly in the end, they think it's their own idea, which is why they're so enthusiastic about it. You see, next, they make this decision. They make it based on the conviction of the Spirit and on what their leader has told them to do, and they embrace it. Verse 12, then they said, we will give it back and will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. And you can see the people's response in verse 12. They've obviously taken these words to heart. It almost sounds, as I read it, as if they've started to think like it's their own idea. Oh, yeah, that's great. Let's do that. We really like that idea. That's a great idea. Had he suggested it a day earlier, I doubt they would have thought that. Or had it come from one of the people they had indebted, I doubt they would have said that. But he has the thought that this isn't going to last unless he does something to ensure it. So he has them all swear an oath before the priests. Another great example of good leadership at work here. Believers who live in their flesh, we're talking about disobedient, ungodly believers, saints of the Old Testament here, people who know the Lord but just aren't living like they do. Those people are easily swayed one way or the other. When they're alone, they do as their flesh desires. But when they're in the company of godly influences, they can quickly agree to change their behavior. They can quickly rally around what is right and true and good and put their name behind it and appear to be falling in line. And then just as quickly, they will revert to their sin when that influence is gone. Have we not all known somebody like this? Have we not even been that person maybe? Flesh offers no stability. That's the essence of what James says. Only when we live in the spirit, when we grow spiritually mature through a practicing of the disciplines of our faith, only then do we become stable in all our ways as opposed to unstable in all our ways. Nehemiah knows that, it would appear. He knows in this case these people are not stable. How quickly they would turn from what they were doing to what he asked. 
And so he puts a fence around their flesh, so to speak. He calls them to have this promise before the priesthood. That meant they were bound under a penalty. And then he stipulates the penalty. The penalty, if they did not keep their promise, is that the offender would lose all his possessions. So, in other words, if they revert to their old behavior and they fail to keep their promise, whether that is to fail in giving back what they have taken or to fail in lending without user interest in the future, etc., then they would lose far more than they ever hoped to gain through their treachery. Notice in verse 13, the effect of all of that? Everyone kept their promise. A godly leader has to consider the need at times to enforce godliness through whatever means is necessary and proper. Establishing rules. You know, there are good rules that protect our, even ourselves from sin. Establishing barriers to sin. You know, churches typically have two people count the money at least, right? Things that are just sensible because they provide no room for the flesh to take advantage of the situation. And they avoid even the appearance of impropriety, which is equally important. Don't underestimate the power of the flesh or of the enemy's ability to manipulate it. And the need for boundaries doesn't end with the people, by the way. I should add that leadership is also best served when they guard themselves against temptations. I've heard many a, a pastor or leader in ministry talk about rules like they never ride with another woman in a car alone or they don't meet with women in places alone or, or in the case of a woman, they wouldn't meet with a man. And things that are just basic good ideas so that we don't have the potential for the enemy to trip us up. And then Nehemiah, having committed them and seen the result, look in verse 14, he sets boundaries for himself. Moreover, he says, from that day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine, besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also applied myself to the work of this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me. And once in ten days, all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. Remember me, O oh my God, for good, according to all that I've done for this people. So Nehemiah says that for the 12 years that he served as governor over the province, and that would include this period of wall building, but it obviously includes a longer period after that, he set strict boundaries for himself. And that's how you should see these things. Not as uh, sacrifices per se, not as penance, but as boundaries. He says, neither Nehemiah nor anyone that was employed by him accepted the governor's food allowance. This is the allowance that a governor in Persia had rights to have, had rights to take from the people. It was a tax and it was paid by those they governed. So there was a tax on the people and it was in the form of grain or livestock. In other words, they had to provide to him a certain amount of food on a regular basis. And that was his allowance as their governor, their food allowance. And as a result, you might expect a governor lived a fairly lavish lifestyle under those circumstances. And they did it at the expense of the people, obviously. But Nehemiah says he was determined not to repeat the sins of prior governors in that respect. He didn't profit from his service at the people's expense. The prior leaders, it appears, not only took what they needed to eat, but an exorbitant amount beyond that. And they also took for their servants, who then domineered the people as well. 
Because they were servants of the governor, they acted as if they were the governor, it appears. But Nehemiah didn't do that. So what was Nehemiah's course? Well, the first thing it says is he rejected that, that allowance, which means immediately if he's going to eat, he has to work. And then it says next, he worked with the people on the wall. Initially, that would have been the work to build the wall. Later, it must have been other kind of work in the city. But he insisted that not only would he work, but so would his servants all alongside the people as well. And then he adds, I never bought any land either. Why he, what he means by all of these things is that he earned his keep, just as they would have had to do. Both Nehemiah and his servants made their living working in exactly the same way as the people did. He didn't accept the allowance. He didn't earn his living by becoming a land baron and lording over the people through that kind of a relationship. He did it the old-fashioned way. He earned it. Finally, he says, he was generous with what he had. He regularly invited 150 other Jews to share food at his table along with Gentiles who came in from the surrounding area. Now, inviting others to the table of the governor was a Persian custom. The the Persian governors often had lavish meals that included all these extra people. That partly justified why they got the food allowance in the first place. Now, he says, I continue to carry on the tradition without taking the allowance, even though I was due that allowance, he says. And it's not hard to appreciate the example that he's setting here by his sacrifice, right? He wanted to show love and concern for the people, even above himself, even above his own needs. He didn't want to burden them. He says that. And that's a great example. Man, wouldn't we love godly leaders who always live like this? Leaders who can be a source of refreshment to the people they serve so that when the people see them coming, they're actually encouraged by their presence. They're not feeling any more stressed by that presence. They're not feeling burdened by that presence. And that is possible. We all know how many pastors, other religious leaders in our day have made godliness a means of gain, despite Paul's warning in 1 Timothy chapter 6. But Nehemiah set an example of working to provide for oneself. In my view, ministry is not a profession. Ministry is a service. And while one may make his living from the proclamation of the gospel, the focus should always remain on the proclamation of the gospel, not on making a living. And in many cases, it is far better for all concerned that a leader make his own living so that those he serves would benefit from both his words and his example. And it's easy for our flesh flesh to dismiss godly counsel when it comes from someone who needs something from us or someone we resent because of the burden they place upon us. But if our leader doesn't burden us financially and our leader is self-sufficient and our leaders are those who take seriously their their desire to serve without burdens, then we have no excuse any longer to ignore what they may offer us as far as spiritual counsel goes, because there is clearly no quid pro quo and no, no sense that what they are saying is tainted or that our ability to hear is tainted by that financial relationship. Nehemiah sets that example, and he does it, it says, every day of his 12 years in this role of service, never taking his allowance, always working alongside the people. And yet, what's also interesting to me is Nehemiah doesn't wear that sacrifice on his sleeve or find ways to remind the people how much he was sacrificing on their behalf. On the contrary, he's generous with what he has. So in other words, even if he had had reason to say, well, I'm not taking my allowance from you, so I can't have you eat at my table, he does it anyway. He continues in the expected traditions of hosting people at his table, even though he's doing it on his own dime. It is If it's possible for a leader to burden his people financially by taking too much, it's also possible for a leader to burden his people emotionally by reminding them continually of that sacrifice. Nehemiah took nothing and he lived like he had everything. 
No doubt the people saw him as a refreshing change from the past governors, right? Why did Nehemiah make those sacrifices? Well, you could argue that he cared for the people, and that's certainly at the heart of it. But that's not the extent of it. In fact, that's not his only motivation. It's clear in the last verse we read, verse 19, Nehemiah asked the Lord to remember his decisions and his sacrifices as he chose to serve the people without burdening them. When he says to the Lord, remember me, he doesn't mean remember me so as to let me come into heaven, right? That's not based on work. That's based on faith alone. There's no need for him to be praying for that kind of remembrance. It's already assured by faith. So if he's not asking God to remember him for the sake of entering heaven, what's he asking for remembrance of? He's asking God to reward him in the kingdom for his faithfulness, for his service. In other words, Nehemiah wasn't interested in receiving his reward on earth. To be rewarded on earth meant to forfeit his reward in heaven. To burden the people now meant that he'd have nothing when he came into his glory. And the heavenly rewards for service will far outshine any reward you can possibly receive on earth. Nehemiah knew that. So he willingly gave up a reward on earth to be eligible for greater reward in heaven. That should be the motivation of every Christian and especially every godly leader. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.6, Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. If you don't understand that he's talking about heavenly gain, then the statement he just made is self-contradictory. How can I gain greatly if I'm content? Well, the great gain is the eternal gain that godliness will yield. But if you are to see the eternal reward in its fullest, you have to be content with what you have here and now, however meager it may be. So being content today means making no effort, spending no time and energy on making what you have today better, but rather spending all of that available time on earning treasure in heaven. But if you're not content with what you have here, then you spend all your time earning more here at the expense of what might be possible for you in heaven. You see, you'd only have so much time, and I know of no circumstance where you can do both simultaneously, where you can uh, earn your treasure on earth and in heaven at the same time. That isn't to say that our life's goal is to be poor. That's not the rule we're trying to, to, to get to here. We should be putting our time toward earning eternal treasure. That's the point. Nehemiah spent his days working with the people, living on less so that he might be rewarded with more. So we'll stop there. Thank you for your attention. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let us consider these lessons. Some of them may apply to us directly as we lead others. And others, Father, may just be things we consider as we look for and respect and follow leaders around us. But give us wisdom and discernment on all these things. Discernment, Father, to know how we might be better servants ourselves, where we might be more selfless and more concerned with our obedience. And in other times, Father, let us be leaders who might come with refreshing leadership, not burdensome leadership, who seek to call things as they are in love with courage, but also, Father, to build up people and not projects. Let our attention be molded by what we've learned in these things so that we can be better servants to you. And in all that we do, whether we're serving or whether we're leading, Father, in all the ways you may call us, I pray, Lord, our eternal focus would never wane. All that we care for, Father, is your pleasure knowing you're good and just to reward us as you see fit, but that we would not let the world's rewards take precedence in our heart. We pray these things, Father, knowing that what comes in our glory far exceeds anything we could obtain here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.